Our scripture text this morning is Micah chapter 5. And Micah chapter 5 is a passage that is frequently, if not most frequently, read at Christmas time. And that's because it's explicitly quoted, Micah 5, explicitly quoted in Matthew chapter 2 in the narrative about the birth of Jesus. But this is not a message that is limited to just one season. And this summer we're going through the book of Micah. This is a message for all seasons, a message about the arrival of a king who will bring peace. So if you'd like, and I'd encourage you to to do it, turn to Micah chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, your own Bible, that's fine. You can grab the blue Bible that's in the, uh, in the chair rack. You can find Micah 5 on page 989 or look at the screen behind me as I read. But as I read, I'll ask you to stand if you're able to do that. Listen. And when I'm done reading, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Micah chapter 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, for they they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword. And the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots, and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes, And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, something happens at the beginning of every August across the country and has for a number of years, high school students are shocked across the country to remember or to be reminded that they were given something in June that is very easy to forget, a summer reading assignment, a book that they have to read over the the summer, maybe a short paper that they need to write or a project they need to do about that book. Kids, I'm not, students, I'm not lying, right? It happens. Now I want you to flash back. Tommy Har, summer of 1989. 
sophomore year, going into sophomore year, out of freshman year, and the summer reading assignment for me was the mid-20th century classic from the British author T.H. White, The Once and Future King. It's actually a collection of shorter novels, The Once and Future King, written in 1938, 1939, 1940, and then compiled into one volume with the last book in 1958. And it's a retelling about the legends of King Arthur. All in all, for a summer reading assignment, not a bad assignment, King Arthur. An ancient king, mostly if not completely fictional, who rescues Britain from its enemies without and from chaos within during the Age of Knights. An unlikely king from an unexpected place who's recognized to be the rightful king because he's the one who pulled the sword out of the stone, who pulled Excalibur from its stone. The once and the future king. And these T.H. White stories, they found a very interesting audience, very interested audience, when they were written. You might expect, right, in the early 1940s. Why would Britain be so taken by the stories of King Arthur during that time? Well, because Britain was under siege, literally. Right? The Nazi Air Force was bombarding it, the Nazi Navy was blockading it, the Nazi Army was threatening it across the channel, and the British people sought to summon the spirit of Arthur, an ancient king who was needed to save them again. Well, in Micah 5, they need a king too, the people of God, an ancient king and a coming king, a rescue from enemies without and from chaos within. It's a need, if we're honest, that we can all relate to at some level in every age, which is why the theme of returning king who once was is prominent throughout literature, right? It's Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. It's Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. It's King Richard in the Robin Hood legends. A king who is gone, but a king who needs to return again. Micah 5, though, is no legend. Micah 5 is history. Remember, he's prophesying, he's writing, he's ministering around 700 B.C. during the days when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrian army and where those same armies were now threatening the southern kingdom in the city of Jerusalem in Judah. They needed a rescuer. They needed a rescuer in their day, and Micah certainly had that in view as he was writing. The people would have understood that. They would have had immediate application, but Micah was also looking forward to something else, to a greater king, to a future king. A king needed not just in ancient Israel, but a king that we need today, a king who has come and a king who will come again. So let's look at this passage from Micah 5. There's three headings that I've put in the bulletin that will help us as we go. Need of the king, that's mainly in verse 1. The arrival of the king, that's mainly verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. And then the impact of the king, that is the rest of the chapter from the second part of verse 5 through verse 15. All right, let's start with the need of the king. That's where we start. That's where chapter 5 begins and where chapter 5 flows out of chapter 4. Now chapter 4, if you were here last week, talks about a final forever kingdom. It looks forward in the latter days, it says. It looks forward on the other side of the horizon to that day when the great and wonderful eternal kingdom will be established. Wonderful. No more fighting. No more material poverty. No more fear. And we noted as we live today that there is great resistance to that kingdom, just like in Micah's day. That kingdom is coming. It's in the latter days. It's on the other side of the horizon, but there's resistance to that. And verse 1 of chapter 5 describes that. Muster your troops, the prophet says. Get ready to defend yourself. Trouble's coming. Siege is laid against us. Trouble from all sides. It's closing in around us, right? They're going to strike the king, right? Now, this is future-oriented 
prophecy. And Micah is probably talking about a number of different things all at the same time. The prophets did that, got used and spoke through the prophets to do that. There was usually immediate application in immediate context and then longer term prophecy, a context of the prophecy as well. Now, what could Micah be talking about in the nearer term? Well, he could be talking about, like he said, like I said, the, the threat of Assyria, King Sennacherib and the, and the Assyrian army. The Assyrians had already laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel, and they were known for their absolute brutality. And in 701 BC, they set their sights on Jerusalem in the southern kingdom of Judah, and it would happen. They would come to the edge of the city, and they would threaten its destruction. Micah could be talking about that. That would be the nearest term event that he might have in mind. He also might have in view, also somewhat immediate in the broad context of history, but he might also have in view to some degree the ultimate fall of Judah that would happen not in 701, but years later in 587 BC to the Babylonians. Probably thinking in some way about that, right? Might be that as well. Could be both of them. Probably is to some degree. Now what we do know is that whichever near-term object he had in view, we do know that he's also talking about a farther-off future as well. First, a farther-off future in which a king will come out of Bethlehem. We'll get to that in a second, right? Where the threat was not from the Assyrians, it wasn't from the Romans, it was from a Roman occupation, or it wasn't from the, uh, the Babylonians, it was from the Romans, from a Roman occupation. The threat was, was, was from centuries of, of silence from God after the end of the prophets. That's the siege that the people of, of that first century, by our current dating, would have been feeling. We also know that he's probably looking even farther beyond that to some degree into the future to the latter days, right? That's what we've been talking about. The very end of the age, the future and the more generalized threat against the people of God that continues to exist even in our day, attempting to prevent us from experiencing the peace of the coming eternal kingdom. In every case, whether it's Assyria or Babylon or the Roman Empire or our current age, in every case there is a threat against the people of God from which they need rescue. In other words, nothing good that is promised at the end of chapter 4 or all throughout chapter 4, none of that good, none of that great beautiful kingdom without pain, without fear, without, without death. None of that is going to happen unless there is a rescue, unless there is a king to come and save them. The problem is, in Micah's day, under the threat of King Sennacherib, or in the days of Caesar Augustus, or in the days around us today, or throughout human history, the problem is, while that promise is out there and that need is there, it looks really bleak. It often does. It often seems really, really dark. It seems like God's promises, though we see them and can read them, it seems as if they're at risk. We can't see how he's going to possibly deliver, and we feel helpless, right? That's heading number one, the need of the king. Now, heading number two, the arrival of the king. Now, this happens, and we get ourselves ready for this, when we recognize that helplessness, that feeling of helplessness, is actually where God really likes to start. He likes to start from that place. So never feel as if overwhelming distress is the end, because it often is just where God is planning to begin. Back at the end of June, one of the highlights of my summer so far, Right, Southwall Little League, 11-year-old All-Stars playing rival Northwall Little League. It's the sixth inning. That's the last inning in Little League Baseball, not the ninth. The sixth inning, last inning. 
and we're down by a bunch of runs, like a ton of runs. But we come out, we start getting a couple runners on base, we scrape out a run, and I'm thinking, all right, okay, at least we're going to go down with a fight, right? And up comes one of our scrappiest, most intense players, and he gets on base. I think another run scores. I'm coaching first, and so I congratulate him. I remind him of the situation. That's kind of what the first base coach does, right? Just get good job. All right, we got two. And I tell him, look, two outs, we're down by six. Right? It's kind of depressing. The situation is bleak. And then my favorite moment, my favorite moment of the season, this kid looks me square in the eye, and he says without a hint of sarcasm, Right? Not, a, not, not, not a bit. With all the sincerity in the world, he looks at me and he says, Coach, we got him just where we want him. <laughs> we come back and win the game. Do you know that? We won. Now, you might not always win the baseball game, but God's modus operandi, the method of his operation, is to look at the most bleakest, most hopeless of situations and say, with absolute confidence and with the absolute ability to back it up, I've got him just where I want him. Because verse 2, after verse 1, starts with a big old but. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. What's Micah doing? He's talking to a town, which is kind of strange, but that's what he's doing. He's talking to a town. A town, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Two names, same place. Ephrathah is the older name, Bethlehem, newer. But it's the same place. It's been mentioned before in the Bible, Jacob's wife, Rachel, died on the way to Ephrathah. It's where, it's where most famously, the, 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 this guy, Elimelech, was from. Uh, Elimelech was, uh, w- was from Bethlehem. A famine caused him to go, um, uh, g- go into to Moab, where his sons married women uh, there from, from Moab. Uh, one of them was named Ruth. Now the husbands all die. Ruth, a widow, now returns to, to Bethlehem, and she remarries in Bethlehem a guy named Boaz. And the family uh, stays in town for a few generations until the prophet Samuel shows up in Bethlehem one day, this is 1 Samuel 17, shows up to talk to a guy named Jesse about one of his sons becoming king of Israel. And it isn't one of the expected older sons that God chooses, the stronger sons, the more prominent sons. It's David, the youngest, who comes out of Bethlehem to become the great King David. So Bethlehem gets its mention, it gets its due, it has its place in history, but it's still mostly remarkable for being unremarkable. In verse 2, Micah calls Bethlehem too little to be among the clans of Judah, and that's true. They don't even make the map, not even in the census, the original census. If you go back and look at Joshua 15, which describes the portion of the promised land that was given to the tribe of Judah. It lists dozens and dozens of cities and towns and villages that are a part of the region of Judah. But you know what village is not mentioned? It's not even mentioned, Bethlehem. We know it was there. I told you about the references in the book of Genesis. But apparently it was too small, too insignificant to make the cut of the towns included in the official record. But out of that town is going to come the king, Micah says who is to be ruler in Israel. Now, wait a minute. There was a, king, there was a king already who came out of Bethlehem, but here Micah's talking about one who is to be ruler in Israel. And then, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Wait a minute. Okay, a king who is coming, future, but who is also from of old, once, a once and a future king. He's going to be born. He's going to gather the people of God to himself. That's what it says in verse 3. He's going to stand. He's going to be strong. But he's not going to be a tyrant because he's also a shepherd, verse 4. He's going to come, also in verse 4, Micah says, in the name of and with the authority of the Lord, of of Yahweh, the covenant God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
He's going to, to secure for his people an eternal security, a, a, a dwelling that won't be limited to the geographical land of Israel, but will extend, end of verse 4, look, to the ends of the earth. Right? That's going to happen in the future. But remember, this is going to happen in the future, but this king is also from of old. Now, that could mean a couple of different things. At the very least, it means that this king is going to come from the line of David. That's absolutely certain. That's part of what Micah is talking about. That was the promise that God had made to David, the first king out of Bethlehem, back in in 2 Samuel 7. God makes to David a promise that there would be a king, a future king, a one-day king, an eternal king, who would sit on his throne forever. Right? Well, that's the king that's being talked about here, the future king from the line of David, from of old, the Messiah who will one day come. Now, that, that understanding of this, of Micah 5, as talking about the Messiah, that's not just Christians making up that interpretation now. The quote about the Messiah coming from Bethlehem in Matthew chapter 2 that I told you about, that's not, that's not Matthew's interpretation of the prophecy. He's quoting the Jewish teachers, the chief priests, the scribes, whom Herod consulted about where the Messiah was going to be born. Herod, King Herod, the tyrant ruler of the, uh, of the, of the, of the region of the time, under the Roman authorities, said to the wise men, okay, or said, said to, when the wise men came to him, said to the Jewish teachers, to the scribes, and to the high priests, where did the prophets say that, that the Messiah is going to be born? Because he, he wanted to find out the root of the prophecy. And their response was basically, everybody knows that. Matthew 2, 5, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And then he quotes Micah of chapter 5. The same thing happens in John chapter 7. The people are arguing about Jesus, actually arguing that he can't be the Messiah because they think of him as Jesus of Nazareth, which is where he grew up, not Jesus of Bethlehem, which is where he was born. But in doing that, and in the midst of the argument, you see the same point being proven because they say in John 7, 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was from? You see, it was a a common assumption that Micah 5 was talking about the Messiah when it talks about the one who would come out of Bethlehem to rule and to reign on David's eternal throne. The New Testament didn't invent that. What the New Testament does is simply connect the dots for us to say, you know what, you know, you know that one, the future king that Micah talks about, that one, you know that one? Well, he's here, right? And this is when it happened. It happened at the time, the historical moment, when Augustus was Caesar, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, when Herod was the puppet king of Judea. He was born in Bethlehem. All the New Testament does is connect the dots to show us the historical answer to that question. This baby born in Bethlehem that they named Jesus. That's the second heading the arrival of the king. Now, like I said at the beginning, most sermons on Micah 5 are Christmas sermons, so they normally end around verse 5. And I get why. That's the part that's quoted in Matthew. It's the part about Bethlehem. But it's really a shame to stop there because the king from Bethlehem, this king that's coming, this Messiah that Micah's talking about, he has an impact, and it's important for us to remember that. When the king comes, he changes things. There is a difference that's made when that happens. There's more to the story than just the Christmas story. And the end of verse 5 through verse 15 talk about that. And they talk about, this is heading 3, the impact of the king. Now, I don't have time to run through all of this, but let me just give you a couple ways that the coming of this king, who we know to be King Jesus, how he has an impact, how things are changed. First, look at verses 7 and 8. 
Because Jesus has an impact on the role of the church in our world, the Messiah, the King. Look at verse 7. The remnant of Jacob, now that the King has come, the remnant of Jacob, now think people of God, his, his church, shall be in the midst of many peoples. How? Like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. Now, that's an interesting image. That's one image of, of what happens when the people of God are in the midst of the peoples of the world, right? Dew on the grass, showers in the field, light showers. The, the word is kind of a, like a light, nourishing rain, right? That's what the people of God do. That's one of the things that the people of God do in the world now that the Messiah has, has come. The king has arrived, and this is what happens amongst the nations. Refreshment, nourishment. Now, look at verse 8. Something else, almost the opposite, as well, happens at the same time. Starts with the same words as the beginning of verse 7. The remnant of Jacob in the midst of many peoples, right? Same church, same people of God. But this time, how are they described? Like a lion among the beasts. Now that's another, almost an opposite image from nourishing showers. This is God's people on the offensive, or confronting the world, even condemning the world with its with its presence. Now, which is it? Which is it? Is it are, are we dew, nourishing rain, or are we lion, confronting the world? Right? Do we have to choose? Actually, we can't. We shouldn't. Right? There are some who, who want the church to be all dew, all nourishing rain, building hospitals, schools, caring for the sick, caring for the poor. The church has done this throughout history. Indeed, I'd argue that the church has led Western civilization and then through that, the rest of the world into an understanding of human dignity and rights that we now take for granted, right? But the church is not only that, can't only be that. It must also be prophetic in confronting the enemy, the true enemy of sin in the, in the world. Now, on this extreme, there are, there are those who want the church to be only the lion, only the church militant, on the attack, confronting, challenging. But the church needs to be both. And we see both of them in parallel. Now, interestingly, the people of God in Judah's day were probably doing neither of these things, either the do thing or the lion thing. They were probably doing neither of these things well. And it's very hard to do them both well at the same time. But when Jesus the Messiah comes, that's exactly what needs to happen. The world benefits from the presence of God's people among them, and the world is confronted by God's people living among them. Now, one other impact I'll note from verses 10 to 15. When Jesus the King comes, all of our false gods will be confronted. All of our idols, all those things that we go to besides the one true God, they're going to be shown to be inadequate. All these things that we think are our friends but are really our enemies, Jesus rips them away to prove to us that he alone is sufficient. That's what you see in verses 10 and 11, for example. When Micah says to the Lord, remove the idols of our security, the horses, the, the chariots, right? All the things that, that they thought would protect them, right? What's that for us? Our, our bank accounts, our security system, our access to, to good hospitals, our local police force, the strength of the American military, all these things that we, they're good things, but don't put your ultimate trust in them. Now, then, verses 12 to 13, he's also going to strip away the sorceries, the fortune tellers, the carved idols, the false objects of worship. He's going to rip them away as well, and he should. These are not good things. These are substitutes for God, and we struggle with them just the same. And a good Savior, if he is truly good, a good king, will not allow us to remain fooled and in a state of illusion where we place our trust in false things that will never give us the security, will never give us the satisfaction that we might think they do. He's going to rip them away. 
He's going to be purposeful about it, even violent. That's what you get in verses 14 and 15. He's going to root out the evil from among, from among his people, and he's going to execute vengeance against his enemies. That is the impact of the king. Now, where does all this leave us? Well, in a minute, we're going to come together and we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted as a practice for his church on the night that he was betrayed and arrested. It was on that night before that happened that Jesus met with his disciples over dinner, you remember? And he told them that he was going to leave them soon. And they were a little unnerved by this, right? The world's a dangerous place. Where are you going? We're, we're, we're still under siege here, Jesus. Which is why Jesus says to them, right, as part of his talk to them, his, his sermon to them that night, in John chapter 14, he says to them words that sort of echo the, the, the first part of verse 5 in Micah chapter 5. Jesus said to his disciples on that night, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You have heard me said to you, I am going away and I will come to you. Be at peace, he says, right? He says, he says, be at peace. He says, I came once, I'm going away, but I'll be coming again. Once and future, again. And when I come back, I'll bring that peace that I've started to bring even now. That's what Micah 5 is saying. That's what Micah is saying the Messiah King will do. God's people will dwell secure for now. He, that's the Messiah King, will be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. Now, how does he give that peace? Not in the way that we might expect a warrior king to bring that peace through the sword. Not, not at first. No, no, no. That's not, how, that's, not how the peace, that's not how the peace happens initially. It's not how we get back into a, into a state of peace with God. No, Jesus says, not as the world gives do I give to you. He's going to bring access to the ultimate peace and restoration in a very different way than what was expected. That's what Jesus is preparing his disciples for in that upper room when he meets with them before his death, to prepare them for that to prepare them for his death, to show them the significance of his death. It's why he gives us, as he gave to them, the Lord's Supper to celebrate. The once and future king, right? My old summer reading assignment. It's based on a version, T.H. White, right? He took the, the, the sort of the definitive uh, version of the, the King Arthur legends that was compiled in the mid-1400s, compiled under the title La Morte de Arthur, The Death of Arthur. Right now, that mid-1400s book is about more than just Arthur's death. It was about the birth of Arthur, the life of Arthur. But the title that stuck to that volume from the mid-1400s throughout the centuries was The Death of Arthur. That's how it's referred to as the, that volume, The Morte de Arthur. Right? And that's where T.H. White's title comes from as well. When he calls his entire volume about the entire life of King Arthur, when he calls it The Once and Future King, he's thinking of a line from that original work in the mid-1400s. Because according to the ancient source material, when Arthur died, a stone marker was placed at Arthur's grave in Glossenbury that read in Latin, Hic Iaset Arthurus. Here lies Arthur. Rex quondum, Rex quae futurus. King once, king future. It's a marker that was placed on Arthur's grave. It's a marker that could have been placed on the grave of Jesus, the king who died and the king who is going to rise again. It's a marker that figures and describes what we are doing right here when we come at the foot of this table to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Because here we primarily remember not in this act, not the life of Jesus, as significant and as critical as it is, and it was. But we remember here his death, the grave to which he went, the grave from which he 
rose. But the Lord's Supper is not just a remembrance that points us backward, right? It's not just a reminder of what the king did once. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament that points us as well to the future. We read the words every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read them again in a minute from 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul recounts the time when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in that upper room on the night that he was betrayed, and Paul told them that Jesus told them to eat the bread and drink the wine in remembrance of him. Yes, looking back to the, to the once. But then Paul adds a little bit of further commentary, and he says, eat the bread, drink the wine, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see that? Until he comes. In the Lord's Supper, it's not just remembrance, it is also future. It is also looking forward. The king's coming back. The legends are true. This one is the true legend, the legend to which all the other legends point. There was a king once and a king who will always be, and that king is returning. Are you ready for that? What we do here, what we do here is what gets us ready for that. Back to Bethlehem Ephrathah for just a minute to close. Bethlehem Ephrathah. Do you know what those Hebrew words mean? Bethlehem is a compound word. Beth, house, lechem, bread. The house of bread. Jesus is the one who said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And he's the one who said, when he took the bread at the Lord's Supper, this is my body, which is for you. The king who comes from Bethlehem, the house of bread. Ephrathah. It's from the verb para, which means to be fruitful, the fruit of the vine, to bear fruit like the vine. Jesus is the one who said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And he's the one who took the cup, filled with the fruit of the vine, and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, it may be a bit much to be absolutely certain that Micah had all those things intended in his connection, but it is absolutely and definitely true. The King Jesus, the once and future King, whom we remember and whom we proclaim until he returns, that King is the King from Bethlehem Ephrathah, the house of bread and the fruit of the vine, the body and the blood. To know the peace and the healing of the Messiah that the Messiah King offers to us, you must feast on him. You must believe and trust that that sacrifice was for you, for your sin, and then submit yourself to the rule and to the authority of that once and that future king. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of this table, the opportunity to celebrate together what you have done, to think about the promises that have been made and how you have fulfilled them and allow that to give us confidence that you will act once again. And so, Lord, we pray that you would apply this gospel truth to our hearts as we come to this table. In Jesus' name, amen.